was fooling me, so I'm going to add it now. With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That's the Gospel. As I came to prepare this sermon, I realised I preached most of that Luke passage um, about St John the Baptist at a baptism service in December. So you've already had that bit. Um, the only bit you didn't have before was the bit about Jesus' baptism. So I'm going to focus on the passage from Acts. But before we go there, let's just note that Jesus was indeed baptised by John. And as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven came, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's a wonderful moment of what we call epiphany, and we're in that season now. A moment of God making himself very clear. And in this case, he affirmed, Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus was his much-loved son, the one in whom the Father delights. Now, the passage from Acts is actually a bit more difficult. The compilers of the lectionary took just the last three verses, which we read this morning. And in order to understand those last three verses, I felt we did need more. So we read from, chapter one, from verse 1 in order to get an idea of the time in which it was set. So I wonder if it prompted any memories in your head, perhaps of the Boxing Day sermon that Fiona preached. Boxing Day is the feast of a saint who doesn't seem to have much to do with Christmas. Remember? Stephen, I can see one or two nods. So Stephen was the first Christian martyr who got into trouble for preaching about Jesus very powerfully. And then he made such a powerful address to the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, that they immediately dragged him out of the city <coughs> and stoned him to death. He died gazing on Jesus in heaven and with words of forgiveness for his murderers. And do you remember who was minding the cloaks? That was Saul, who later became Saint Paul. We're told that he approved of the stoning. And soon after that event, Saul got into action, destroying the church. So the believers were scattered. And that's why Philip went to Samaria and other people went to other places preaching Christ there. So that's our context. But I have to admit this still leaves us with some questions that are difficult to answer. Why had the Holy Spirit not come on these people? They'd obviously accepted Philip's message about Jesus with joy and been baptised. Now this Philip was not the Apostle Philip because the Apostles had stayed in Jerusalem, as we read in our reading. 
It was probably the one of the seven men who had been appointed to do practical jobs in the church, the deacons. He was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, as we're told in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was a powerful preacher. He did great miracles in Jesus' name. And yet, it seems that the coming of the Holy Spirit on these believers from Samaria was delayed until a representative from the apostles, Peter and John, arrived. So does it mean that it's only the apostles who can pass on the gift of the Holy Spirit? This is the view of the Roman Catholic Church and of some in the Anglican Communion too who believe that it's only the successors of the apostles who could confer the Holy Spirit, uh, usually at confirmation, as hands are laid on people. But on other occasions, the Holy Spirit came when the apostles weren't looking for him. For instance, at Pentecost. And another time when Peter preached to Cornelius in chapter 10. Peter was just getting going on his sermon and the Holy Spirit came and took Peter completely by surprise. The apostles wrote epistles and nothing in them really suggests that they alone had the power to confirm the Holy Spirit or that they controlled him. It's not one of the apostles who came to St. Paul after he was converted. It was a chap called Ananias, about whom we know almost nothing, who was a Christian in Damascus. So that's one conclusion that's often been drawn from this passage. Another conclusion which has been drawn is that there is some further blessing of the Holy Spirit, which is given after conversion and baptism. Those who hold this view often claim that the baptism of the Spirit, as they call it, must be accompanied by outward expressions, especially speaking in tongues. So does that mean that we who've been uh, believing and been baptised and confirmed might have missed out on receiving the Holy Spirit? Is there some further blessing we ought to see? And this is the view that largely has been taken by charismatic branches of the church, although they differ widely. I don't think either of these views is quite right, though I do see where they come from. Our understanding of any one passage in the Bible must take into account what is said elsewhere so that we look at the whole of Scripture. And in this case, we must take on board what is written about the Holy Spirit indwelling all who trust in Christ from the moment they respond to the Gospel with faith. We can't base our understanding on just one passage, especially when, as here, we're reading about a historical event. We shouldn't jump to conclusions without studying further. There was an apparent delay in this one incident between the response of faith and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't tell us that there is always a delay. There might have been another reason. So what reason could there be Let's go back to Acts as a whole. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus told the apostles that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1 and 8. 
But up to this point, the church was mainly a Jewish affair. It started in Jerusalem, and then it spread to the Jewish communities in Judea and possibly beyond. But it seems that there was little attempt, if any, to go beyond the borders of Judaism. It took the death of Stephen and Saul's determination to destroy the church to force the church to go out. This unplanned, forced movement out from Jerusalem, this involuntary go, as it's sometimes dubbed, resulted in many more people hearing the good news of Christ. And Philip preached in Samaria. The Samaritans were partly Jewish with elements of the Jewish faith, but they were despised by the Jews as having mixed race and mixed religion. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans and went out of their way to avoid them. But yet Philip went, and clearly the Holy Spirit was with him. The Samaritans seemed to have been very open to the good news about Jesus. They grasped the message that Jesus has power over evil spirits, which they were rather familiar with apparently. Jesus is stronger than those spirits and he can heal. And the Samaritans were very glad to hear it, and they welcomed the message. They were full of joy about it, and they were baptised to show their repentance and faith in Christ. The apostles heard about it, and they came to investigate. They were glad to see what God was doing, but they perceived something. As yet, the Holy Spirit had not come upon anyone. Now, what on earth that phrase actually means is up for dispute. In other places in Acts, and in later writings of Paul and of other apostles, it's a bit puzzling because they talk about all believers having the Holy Spirit when they believe. And it may be that as these people had responded to the message, the Holy Spirit had indeed quietly taken up residence. But there'd been no visible marker of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. Interestingly, we're not told what actually happened when he did come. Perhaps they spoke in tongues, perhaps not. But there was something which happened which marked out that these people were indeed true believers in Christ and accepted by God. Now I think there are good reasons to see this whole story as shaped by the fact that these people were the first Samaritans to come to Christ. If the Samaritan church had started without reference to the established Jewish church, there could well have been some unhealthy division. Jewish believers, like my little cartoon, Jewish believers might have refused to acknowledge the Samaritan believers as part of the church. The Samaritans might not have wanted to connect to the Jewish church Establishing a church in Samaria was new. It was a new stage in the progress of the gospel out from the centre of Jerusalem. God wanted to endorse this new stage by bringing the leaders of the Jewish church in at the beginning so that the church would continue as one body. There's a parallel with what happened a little bit later when the very first Gentiles, complete non-Jews, believed in Christ in Acts chapter 10. God told the non-Jewish 
Roman Cornelius to send to Peter. And as Peter began to explain about Jesus, the Holy Spirit just took over and came upon all those who were present. Took Peter by surprise. Peter was amazed, but he recognised this was God's doing. This was God's endorsement of these non-Jewish people also becoming part of the church. So they were baptised after the Holy Spirit came on them. This was another stage in the progress of the Gospel out from the centre. And again, Peter was involved, as he had been on the day of Pentecost, as he was with the Samaritans, so he was with the Gentiles. Peter, the one who held the keys of the kingdom. I don't think this passage is telling us that only the Apostles could confer the Holy Spirit as though they controlled it all. Nor do I think that it's affirming some second blessing. I believe he comes to dwell in us as soon as we trust in Christ. I believe in multiple blessings of the Holy Spirit. So a second one and a third and a fourth and a fifth and however many we can get. And praise God for it. He is willing to fill us afresh whenever we seek him. Let's pause for a moment and think about the mysterious ways of God. He had a plan to see the good news of Jesus spread out all across the world. He still has that plan, and we are nearer completion than we were. But there's still a long way to go. There are still many people who have never really heard the gospel. And God wants people of every tribe and nation and tongue to be with him in heaven. And at each stage, he initiates that outward push of the gospel. He gives his Holy Spirit to all believers, from the pious Jew to the crazy mixed-up Samaritan, from a God-fearing Roman Gentile to the wildest tribes in remote forests. Every believer of whatever background is part of the family of God. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are hugely varied in appearance and background and diet and habitat and culture, but we're all one in Christ. We should all be worshipping the Lamb who was slain, who we've seen about just now, together. That's one of the reasons why we so much love the work of the ship Logos Hope. The crew are drawn from about, around 60 nations at any one time from Papua New Guinea to Uruguay, the Faroe Islands to South Africa or Argentina. What a sign of the kingdom of God when we all worship the Lord Jesus together. And the aim of the ship is to see communities of Jesus followers established in areas where there are none as yet. A large part of that is training young people to have a worldwide vision of what God wants to do. But what about us? We're also part of that expanding movement of God. When we here at the Good Shepherd tell our story to a friend, a relative, a neighbour, or a stranger, we're part of God's mission to the world. And we can be sure that the Holy Spirit who lives in us is with us all the way. He will prepare the ground and he will back up what we say <coughs> and convince people 
Of course, they won't all accept it. We know that. People have the choice. But we trust the Holy Spirit makes them aware of that choice. Let's pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus this week. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to come on us afresh so that we are full of fresh courage and confidence in the Lord. Another thing we should do is keep ourselves informed of what God is doing around the world so that we can pray. Many mission groups produce wonderful magazines about their work. They're free. They can be sent direct to your home. And I would heartily recommend that you have at least one come to your home. It's so encouraging to read what God's doing. So in news and information this week, we've included some names and addresses, phone numbers and websites so that you can go and have a look or contact that group and choose something, get started. It's really, really wonderful thing to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is continually pushing us out to tell others about you. We pray that you come on us and fill us afresh with confidence in the message we carry so that we can share the good news of Jesus.